Well, thanks for joining me for the fourth part of Romans 8. And if you haven't been with me for the first three parts, let me bring you up to speed. I really believe that Romans 8 is not only the summit of the book of Romans, I really think it's the great systematic theology in all of Paul's writings, except it's a bit asystemic. The parts that he is describing of the way of Jesus, the new covenant, are scattered throughout the chapter. And so the reason I'm doing six parts is I want to bring them into a sort of a, a time-space alignment, take us through the entirety of what he's trying to get across to us so that we really take hold. So the first part was what I called the baseline, no condemnation, no separation from the one who made it so. The second part was about the fall and then the incarnation. Then came the cross and resurrection. Today, the Holy Spirit. Next time, we're going to be talking about union, kind of what it means to be one with him. And then finally, the call of God. How do we actually live this out? So that's where we have been. That's where we're going to be today and where we're going. And well, let's dive right in. I want you to imagine a man on foot, surrounded all around him by, let's call them fellow henchmen, and they're making their descent into a large, bustling city. It's the middle of the day, it's hot, it's dead calm, there's not a hint of breeze in the air. From below them, the noises of the town rise up to greet them. All of these men are walking along, sweating, kind of irritated. So that's what's happening. Now, what is that man I talked about, the one right at the center of the group? What's he like? Well, he moves by instinct. He is strong in a forceful, fairly overwhelming way. His relationships are all measured by their relative strengths, never by care. Everything for him is is really actually marked by force, by power. And and interestingly, his relationships, his devotions, his work, are all of them, despite all that power, strangely devoid of life or any form of liveliness. His worldview, though it's been steeped in the traditions of his ancient faith, is actually very much like the later Nietzsche. Destroy or be destroyed. Those are the two interpretations he has gained from his belief. And all of it's really quite limited. His heart, if he was ever honest, which he's not really, would actually be a place of almost unending fear. He feels worthless unless he's obeying his religious law's commandments. He believes suffering and pain are the highest form of devotion. And so, what is this man doing? Where is he going? What's that that he's clutching in the grip of his hand as he descends toward that city below? He's holding a written sentence of judgment, judgment possibly unto death for the followers of a particular carpenter teacher who are seeking to follow that savior down there in the city of Damascus. This man, Saul, wants them all dead. He is heading down the final stretch toward the city. When suddenly, all creation floods with an overwhelming light and he hears a voice, Saul, Saul. All right, now I want you to imagine a different man. 
also on foot, walking along with two of his friends, and they're making their way toward a huge, sprawling Roman province. A sea breeze uh, blows off the distant Black Sea. The air is fresh. The seasons feel as if they're changing. These men are are nowhere really near a, a town or city. They're just walking along, chatting casually to one another, and alive, really, to the promise of the day they're in. That's what's happening. And so what is the man, that man between his two friends, what's he like? Well, he moves in a, I would call it, studied, listening, patient, waiting upon the Spirit of God kind of way. He is reinforced by a different life living within him. His relationships are vast. They're very, they're all over the world, and they're measured by a love and care that springs up from within. Everything in his life is marked by love and spiritual vitality. His relationships, his devotions, his work are all overwhelmingly full of life, of liveliness, of attraction toward the truth. His worldview is the worldview of the one who came before him. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has arrived. That's all he cares about. That kingdom and its wondrous, wonderful king. And all of it is unlimited, unending. His heart is full of it. His heart is full of love. He feels useful as he follows the living voice of his living Savior. He believes anything he might suffer is just an outflowing of that Savior's glory. And so, what is this man doing? Where's he going? What is he holding in his heart? as he walks toward the province ahead. He is holding the words of life. Like he's holding freedom in the direction of eternal life. And it's for anyone who hears, desires, repents, and believes in the living life of that same carpenter teacher. This man, a different man, now going by the name of Paul, wants all humankind to live So, he is walking along toward the province of Bithynia, when suddenly the Holy Spirit whispers, not here, Paul, Troas, go to Troas and wait for my next word. So, like I said, we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit today, and I I give you those two portraits, those two moments Because I want us to wrestle with one of the uh, most fundamental truths about the Holy Spirit that I don't think we think enough about. Friends, you cannot be the same person having received the Holy Spirit as you were before the Holy Spirit. Paul is not Saul, just kind of a little bit more Christian. No, Paul and Saul are not the same person. So as we delve into the words of that very Paul about that Holy Spirit from Romans 8, I want you to hear me loud and clear on this, and it's going to be a little bold. We dishonor the Holy Spirit when we pretend that he's just a strain of theology, something to have views about, something uh, for certain denominations, not so much for others, uh, to get excited about, rather than the reality that this is a 
third, co-equal, glorious person of the Trinity. He's the communicable life of God, the actual inner life of Jesus himself, who Jesus has personally bestowed upon us. That is the Holy Spirit. He is not thoughts about or theology. He is God made available to us. I know that I have spent far too much of my life ignoring the Holy Spirit. I would wager that maybe you have too. So now I want you to listen to Paul, no longer Saul, telling us exactly what that Holy Spirit means, is, and is all about. So just so you know, this is going to be from Romans 8, verses 9, 11, 12, 13, 14, 26, 27, 15 through 17, as you can tell, a little out of order. So here we go. But you are not carnal, but spiritual, if the Spirit of God finds a home within you. You cannot indeed be a Christian at all unless you have something of His Spirit in you. Nevertheless, once the Spirit of Him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives within you, He will, by that same Spirit, bring to your whole being new strength and vitality. So then, my brothers... You can see that we have no particular reason to feel grateful to our sensual nature or to live life on the level of the instincts. Indeed, that way of living leads to certain spiritual death. But if, on the other hand, you cut the nerve of your instinctive actions by obeying the Spirit, you are on the way to real living. All who follow the leading of God's Spirit are God's own sons. The Spirit of God not only maintains this hope within us, but helps us in our present limitations. For example, we do not know how to pray worthily as sons of God, but His Spirit within us is actually praying for us in those agonizing longings which never find words. And God, who knows the heart's secrets, understands, of course, the Spirit's intention as He prays for those who love God. Nor are you meant to relapse into the old slavish attitude of fear. You have been adopted into the very family circle of God. And you can say with a full heart, Father, my Father. The Spirit himself endorses our inward conviction that we really are the children of God. Think what that means. If we are his children, we share his treasures. And all that Christ claims as his will belong to all of us as well. Yes, if we share in his sufferings, we shall certainly share in his glory. All right, those are Paul's words about the Holy Spirit from throughout Romans 8. Well, let's begin back at the beginning, back with verse 9. And we'll just try and amplify a little bit what he's meaning and saying to us. All right, let's begin at the beginning. But you are not carnal, but spiritual, if the Spirit of God finds a home within you. You see, that's the demarcation, carnal versus spiritual, which is not, by the way, non-Christian versus Christian. It's no spirit versus spirit inhabited. I would say we confuse ourselves and certainly others when we think anything less. And how can I be so bold as to say that in the first place? Well, the second half of that verse, listen. 
You cannot indeed be a Christian at all unless you have something of his spirit in you. Now, as someone who has been part of a, I would call it, conversionary approach to ministry, like classic evangelical evangelism, I want to offer up some, again, kind of bracing words. I think a lot of Christian history has been focused on a bad approach to how to approach non-believers because of its seeming lack of focus on helping those non-believers to approach Jesus. Like, here's what I mean. A fairly typical logic in evangelism, it'll typically run like this. We want to acquaint the non-believer basically with some basic facts about God. Highlight the negativity of sin in the world's ways and of course, then talk about the incarnation a little bit, like give those tried and true lines about Jesus, then quite frankly, hammer, hammer, hammer on sin, the cross, the resurrection, and then right then, right there, go for their response. Seek the hearer's immediate decision. And please hear me. I'm not mocking this approach. I mean, I have literally been the guy doing this. I have been that guy up in front, standing in front of hundreds, even sometimes thousands of people seeking to see the conversion of a human heart. But did you notice in my description of that approach who doesn't usually get mentioned much? Yes, the Holy Spirit. And actually, I can tell you too that a lot of evangelism glosses over the actual person of Jesus in the rush to arrive at pertinent facts about Jesus and his redemptive plan. Like truly, the living, breathing, laughing, eating, teaching while he just casually walks along a dusty road, that Jesus gets kind of short shrift in our headlong rush to account for our numerical statistical results for our little evangelistic strategies. And so why am I so doggone passionate about this? Because again, listen, you cannot indeed be a Christian at all unless you have something of his spirit in you. Years ago, there was a push at our church, First Pres, about uh, sticky faith. Maybe you've heard of that. Like the, basically, the question was, why aren't kids continuing ongoingly to walk with Jesus? And I would always say to Jenny, I think the answer is actually much simpler than this book that keeps getting pushed at us. Kids and people aren't continuing ongoingly to walk with Jesus because one, they never knew him to begin with. And two, we haven't been dealing with the Holy Spirit. Really, we want the perpetuation of the Christian worldview as proof of our Christianity. Jesus wants to possess us each personally. Those are two very different things. Let's go on, because here's where I get really excited. Nevertheless, once the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives within you, he will, by that same spirit, bring to your whole being new strength and vitality. Sometimes I think that that would be a great title for the whole redemptive work in Jesus and his spirit. Like, this would be the title. Nevertheless... Like, you had been stuck in sin and mired in death, and yet, nevertheless, you had been trying to follow God within the strictures of religion, and yet, nevertheless, you haven't thought of him in days, weeks, months, years, and yet, nevertheless, 
You thought you could do this whole Christian thing without the Holy Spirit yet. Nevertheless, in fact, I'm going to read it again. Nevertheless, once the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives within you, he will by that same spirit bring to your whole being new strength and vitality. Friends, the words of that verse are just like a gold mine of understandings. Let me bring it out a little bit. Once the spirit of him, of who? Of the Father. Uh, Friends, the Holy Spirit is the actual inner being of God the Father. The Spirit who raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Friends, the Holy Spirit raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Like, think about it this way. In the silent, inky blackness of a sealed tomb, suddenly that Holy Spirit manifested life into a dead Jesus. This Holy Spirit, he is the spirit of life. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of eternal victory over death. Nevertheless, once the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives within you, stop. The Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of God himself, the the spirit who personally raised Jesus from the dead would live where? Like inside this foolish, fallible, self-important mess that I've been making of my attempt to live my life. I mean, I'm talking like inside this goofy, almost six and a half foot frame, the Holy Spirit of God would be willing to invest himself, the timeless, eternal essence of the Godhead into me? Yes. And into you too. You know, I find it fascinating that somehow In the course of our meandering through two millennia of Christian history, we have found a way to not be totally, utterly focused just on that fact. God wants to live inside you. Uh, Yes, but I mean, how are we going to vote in the next election as Christians? Um, God wants to live inside you. Uh, But, I mean, is he good? You know, I didn't get that raise last year. God wants to live inside you. You know, sometimes I wonder what it really means to be a Christian. Mm. God wants to live inside you. You know, I have been so busy lately. I mean, I've hardly had time just even to have a quiet time. (laughs) Friends, nevertheless... Once the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives within you, he will, by that same spirit, bring to your whole being new strength and vitality. God wants to live in you always, all the more. And he himself is the only answer for what our spiritual lives should be. Like, what is strength in Jesus? The Holy Spirit. Or what is a vital Christian existence? I'll say it again. The Holy Spirit. I got to tell you, I I am just flabbergasted at the amount of my life that I have spent and I spend wondering, why doesn't this seem like it's working? When the answer is literally inside me. Like right now, wherever I am, where you are, I can pray like this. I can almost like look down at my own chest and begin to pray, Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, Father, here you are and here I am. I want to listen to you now and I want to obey 
In fact, I'm just going to sit here, Lord, until you tell me what to do. And if you hear that prayer right now and, and you think, well, he's just some kind of mystic, like that what I just prayed isn't actually practicable, then I want you to listen to Paul go on. We're in verses 12 and 13 now. So then, my brothers, you can see that we have no particular reason to feel grateful to our sensual nature or to live life on the level of the instincts. Indeed, that way of living leads to certain spiritual death. But if on the other hand, you cut the nerve of your instinctive actions by obeying the Spirit, you were on the way to real living. In other words, your flesh, your gut, your instincts are almost always wrong. And if you're always trying to live your life however it happens to occur to you, you are often aiming your life at death unwittingly. I'm going to say it so boldly and a little loudly. You don't know what you're doing. Neither do I. We are, you and me, most of the time, totally feckless. But if, on the other hand, you constantly stop and patiently wait on the Spirit of God within, what happens? Well, you begin to actually live. You live the life of God on earth. You live a life that looks like Jesus' life. Which, by the way, is actually a perfect place to slip in verse 14 now. Listen. All who follow the leading of God's Spirit are God's own sons. Which actually makes logical sense. Because while everyone has been made in the image of God and bears some heavenly earthly likeness to him, it is the inner life where true sonship happens and grows. I'll give you a simple example. The older our son Trip gets, the more and more I continually hear from people like, wow, he's just a little version of you. And they don't just mean our looks because really, honestly, he has a lot more of Jenny in those externals. What they mean is sort of in our, our carriage, our demeanor, our spirit, the way we're maybe like fishing for jokes or even the way we walk across the street or that way we kind of hold our head when we're listening to a story. And those sound like externals, but actually that's born out of the inner life. It's actually the spirit of what it frankly means to be a Eugene Thomas Lunning II and a Eugene Thomas Lunning III, also known as Trip. But what if, under some terrible set of circumstances, Trip had been stolen from us at birth? Like, what if he had grown up in an orphanage on the far side of the world? Our complete lack of fellowship, having none of this day-to-day, minute-by-minute experience of life together that we're having, that would fundamentally change who he is. I mean, think about him growing up that way. And years later, like we could have walked right past each other on a crowded street. We could have even bumped shoulders and actually never known there was anything between us. Friends, I believe that is the difference between following the Spirit of God as the center of our existence and choosing not to engage with the Spirit of God much at all. We can either be sitting at the family table every day, coming to look like the Father who is ours, or we can continue on in our, I'll call it, orphan existence. And actually, I'll put it to you strongly, that choice is actually yours. And now, listen 
even a little further, to what the Holy Spirit means for us. I'll go on. This is verses 26 and 27 now. The Spirit of God not only maintains this hope within us, but helps us in our present limitations. For example, we do not know how to pray worthily as sons of God, but His Spirit within us is actually praying for us in those agonizing longings which never find words. And God, who knows the heart's secrets, understands, of course, the Spirit's intention as He prays for those who love God. I'll say it this way, friends. God is so kind to us. Think about it this way. He created us, never gave up on us, came for us, redeemed us, saved us, and then went ahead and filled us with himself. But here's a question for you. Do you know perfectly how to follow him now? Do you know just innately how to do his will or even how to talk to him? Well, again, he's been kind to us. He has even given us the shared spirit of his relationship within us. Because I believe the Holy Spirit is the spirit of the relationship of the Godhead. He is the way the Father and Son communicate in fellowship. Like he is their shorthand language. When Jesus was walking around the earth, it was the Holy Spirit who was the go-between. And now he goes between us and God every day, like right now and all the time. Which finally, and I know I'm going a little longer than usual today, leads Paul to admonish and exclaim. This is from verses 15 through 17, and this is where we'll close. Nor are you meant to relapse into the old slavish attitude of fear. You have been adopted into the very family circle of God. And you can say with a full heart, Father, my Father. The Spirit himself endorses our inward conviction that we really are the children of God. Think what that means. If we are his children, we share his treasures. And all that Christ claims as his will belong to all of us as well. Yes, if we share in his sufferings, we shall certainly share in his glory. And I did this last week, and I want to do it again today with this podcast If you're able to, I want you to close your eyes and I just want you to listen and sort of just delight in the birthrights of your new birth. This is what Paul just said about you, the Holy Spirit, and God. This is what is yours. Friends, close your eyes. Here we go. You do not have to go back to where you used to be. Like I said before, Paul is no longer Saul. You have nothing to fear. You have been adopted by God. You are meant to sit in the intimacy of his family circle. You can say with a full heart, Father, my Father. You have been given the Holy Spirit of God himself. The Holy Spirit lives in you to make you a son or daughter. You are meant today to share in the treasures of God. You are meant forever to get what Jesus gets. You may suffer for his sake, yes, but you will also, for timeless ages, enjoy his glory. Could I just pray to close our time? Let's 
Let's pray. Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we come to you because we have nowhere else to go. You are the one who made us and saved us. But so thrillingly, you have now chosen to actually inhabit us. So I pray for myself today and for all of my friends who happen to be listening. I pray, Holy Spirit, would you come in greater measure? Would you give us more hunger and thirst for you in our inner life? And would you teach us to constantly slow down, to listen with our inner ear, just like Paul did on the way to Bithynia, so that we begin to understand how to hear you and actually do the things, the will that you have for this day. So Holy Spirit, we throw open our inner life and we say, more of you, please. Holy Spirit, come. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us your spirit. Please give us more. In your name, Jesus, Holy Spirit, Father, we give you this day. We want you. Amen.